Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Well, Ben, we survived the week of minus 40 temperatures here in Calgary. Yes, uh, the tide is finally turning. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, yesterday it was around minus 30, and today today it's like minus 1. If you're a Fahrenheit user, that means that it's gone from being, like, minus 30 Fahrenheit to, like, plus 30 Fahrenheit, I think. I don't Um, know how Fahrenheit works. It doesn't, uh, but (laughs) I'm just pretending for the sake of our American listeners. For sure. In any case, it is quite a jump, and our heads are hurting. Yeah, for sure. We got those pressure headaches because it's gone from being colder than Antarctica because the zoo had to keep the penguins inside. Yes. To just regular cold. Yeah, like you'd probably be fine in a sweater. Um, a little bit of housekeeping just up front. On Patreon, we are nearing our 100th piece of bonus audio. Yeah, it's our 100th week of doing Patreon. Yeah, uh, coming up. Yes. So what we are planning to do to celebrate is we are asking for people to send us questions on either Twitter, Patreon if you're already a patron, or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or use our Tumblr ask box. That's true. Um, and we will answer these questions in an audio format available to um, all of our patrons on Patreon. Uh, and these can be questions about the podcast, about horror, about making podcasts, about Star Wars. About us. About anything. It can be about anything. Yeah. Um, if we get enough questions, we'll answer them. And if we don't like your particular question, we reserve the right not to answer it. In other news, what are we watching today, Ben? Ah, well, I see we have um, stalled as long as we could. And now it is time to talk about She-Wolf of London. From 1946. You mentioned last episode that this is the film that is blamed for killing the horror genre in this decade. Right. I don't think that's fair. I I haven't seen the film, but I still don't think it's fair. No, yeah. The genre has been dying for a while. And to be fair, there will still be horror movies in this decade. Um, But, like, we're in 1946. That means there's, like, four more years left in the 1940s. And there will be about six Hollywood-made horror movies for the rest of the decade. Okay. Um, Which is a huge decrease compared to the numbers we've had, right? Yeah, I think one year we had over six. I mean, we've had years that have had like 13. Yes. Um, The reason why this movie's kind of blamed, I think, is because it represents the end of a very specific era... That really happened less because of this movie and more because of forces outside this movie, but because this movie's release sort of coincided with that, it gets pointed to. Sure. Um, And I'll go into that a bit more later. But I think what's worth pointing out is because the horror genre was struggling by this point, what you started to see, and we've, we've already seen this, is that one of the tactics the studios were using and in this case, Universal. This is a Universal film. One of the tactics Universal employed to kind of judge how bad things were for horror was to basically mix in other genres into their horror movies and see what the public responded to. And this was kind of a strategy to see if they should stick it out with horror and just like wait for you know it to become popular again or drop it. And we've been kind of seeing this, right? We even saw this last week with Bedlam. Yeah. So the theory was that you would have movies that kind of mixed a few different things together and then, you know... Just throw the spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks. Exactly. Uh, So She-Wolf of London, you know, the title sort of evokes Werewolf of London. The movie also evokes cat people with the gender of the lead character as well as sort of her basic psychological problem in this movie, which is that she is not sure if she's a werewolf or not. Um, and then it also contains film noir elements and sort of Victorian mystery movie elements. That's all pretty in line with mm-hmm. what we've been seeing in the 
development of the genre at this point. Yeah. Uh, She-Wolf of London was released as a double feature with a film called The Cat Creeps, Mm. which also demonstrates this strategy. The Cat Creeps was a suspense thriller, but it has the same title as the lost 1930 sound remake of The Cat and the Canary, Mm -hmm. Um, but there's no plot relation. Okay. So She-Wolf of London was produced by Ben Pivar, uh, Universal's B-movie unit head, who we've seen many mm, competent films from (laughs) in the past. Very diplomatic. Yeah. Uh, The director is Gene Yarbrough, whose work we've seen before with The Devil Bat and House of Horrors. Yes. The script is by George Bricker and Dwight V. Babcock, who were the writers of House of Horrors. And Dwight V. Babcock has written a lot of previous B-horror movies for Universal, various entries in the Mummy franchise, etc. In the starring role, we find actress June Lockhart, whose name will probably be familiar to any uh, baby boomer listeners that we might have. So she was born in New York City in 1925. Her father was a Canadian actor, and her mother was an English actor. Uh, and her parents played the Cratchits in the 1938 version of A Christmas Carol with Reginald Owens. Oh, cool. Uh, which led to June's first role in a movie as Belinda Cratchit, one of the two daughters. Oh, that's cute. She played supporting roles in a number of movies through the 1940s, and She-Wolf of London was one of her first leading roles. So she's like 21 in this movie. Okay. She acted on TV through the 1950s, And from 1958 to 1964, she was Ruth Martin, the mother on the television series version of Lassie. Uh, And then, still a mother, but now in outer space, she was Dr. (laughs) She played Dr. Maureen Robinson on the original Mm. Lost in Space from 1965 to 1968. Awesome. Then, from 1968 to 1970, she was Dr. Janet Craig on the final two seasons of Petticoat Junction. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, uh, my mom would yeah, so, definitely know yeah. who this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, my mom great. as well, yes. My, my mom, mom and dad both would know who June Lockhart is. Mom loved Petticoat Junction. My mom also loves Petticoat Junction. <laughs> June Lockhart continued to act on TV through the 80s and 90s. She still works occasionally today. Uh, she is 95. Wow, good for her. Opposite Lockhart is Don Porter, who we last saw in 1942's Night Monster in the romantic heroic lead role. Uh, But he's probably best known as the father on the TV show Gidget from 1965 to 1966. Uh, Dennis Hoey, who plays a police inspector in this film, was basically playing to type as he had already portrayed Inspector Lestrade in six out of the 14 films in Universal's Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes series. For sure. Finally, uh, Martin Kozlek, we will remember as the villain in The Mummy's Curse and House of Horrors. So She-Wolf of London and The Cat Creeps were released on May 17th, 1946. Neither film ignited much enthusiasm from critics or audiences, and the film's failure coincided with a sea change at Universal. Through 1945, the British industrialist J. Arthur Rank had been attempting to gain control of Universal, having already come to own a sizable portion of the British film industry. Rank had created Eagle Lion in the United States to distribute his British films in the U.S., and had bought PRC in order to produce American B-movies to go with the releases of his British A-pictures. However, he also wanted to own a major American A studio so he could control a segment of the American A pictures that got imported into the UK. He owned all of these things kind of separately. It wasn't like the Disney thing where, like, well, now they're the same studio altogether. It was the one guy owning a bunch of different things so that he controlled a lot of stuff without seeming to control a lot of stuff. Yeah. However, Rank's attempts to take control of Universal directly were unsuccessful. Uh, He couldn't get the approvals needed to, like, buy out this major American company as a, like, a British citizen. There were, like, protections in place at that time for that kind of thing. Um, So, instead, he bankrolled a small Hollywood production company called International Pictures, such that International could then effect a merger with Universal. That's some shady shit. 
Standard Capital Corporation, the current parent company of Universal, they were eager to divest themselves of the studio and move on with their lives. So on July 30th, 1946, Universal International Pictures was born. The head of production at Universal International was now William Goitz, who was the co-founder of International. Goitz was the son-in-law of Louis B. Mayer from MGM, and thanks to a loan from him in 1932, he was able to join with former United Artists producer Joseph Schenck and former Warner Brothers producer Daryl F. Zanuck to create 20th Century Pictures. Oh. In 1935, 20th Century bought the failing Fox studio to create 20th Century Fox. Ironically, it is now back to just being 20th Century. Goitz left 20th Century Fox in 1943 to have his own independent production company, International, which he founded with lawyer Leo Spitz. So as J. Arthur Rank already had American B-movies covered with PRC, he didn't need Universal to be making B-movies anymore. Yeah. So Goitz shuttered the B-unit and also ended production of the horror, western, and Arabian Nights genres from the studio. The goal was now prestige pictures for the new Universal International, and thus many longtime Universal stalwarts like Ben Pivar, Jack Pierce, and Vera West were let go. I guess you could say the end of an era had been signaled. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is the end of horror movie production at Universal. Uh, This is the end of a lot of the talent who made those horror movies, and that ends a lot of institutional memory at the studio, right? Yeah. So even when you get these, you know, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, these kind of parody movies that come later, they're not necessarily being made by the same people, even if they've brought back a lot of the old actors. So, for example, you know, Jack Pierce is let go, and he's replaced by Bud Westmore. Because, you know, his brothers all were top makeup guys at the other top studios, and Bud Westmore was slaving away at PRC, and PRC is yeah. now owned by the same guy who owns Universal. So suddenly the stepping stone for Bud Westmore to get into a major studio is there in a way it wasn't before. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to think about, like, obviously we're not a huge fan of Ben Pivar, but we don't, like, wish anything bad towards him. Sure. Um, 80 years in the future. But, you know, you see people who have, like, dedicated a lot of time towards these companies, and then suddenly a shift in the wind comes, and Mm -hmm. they're let go. And someone who was also slaving away, as you said, at PRC, doing the same kind of thing, those winds are favorable to his little ship, and he gets brought back up. Right. It's, you know, it's kind of comforting in a weird way to think about how, like, success is so... Fickle. Right. <laughs> like, you do what you want to do. If you succeed or fail, yeah, it, 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 it's might not, not necessarily up to you. Right, yeah. Like, this is all because of, like, the the whims of... One guy. Right, right. Fucking rank. Right, who's, like, super rich and, like, so above you in the command structure that, like, it has nothing to do with you, right? Yeah. Um. So... This I don't think this will be the last time we see Jack Pierce's makeup. He did continue working in film. Uh, he sort of bounced around from here to there. And I think we might see some stuff from him later on in the 1950s, but I might be wrong. Uh, however, I know for a fact this is the last time we'll see anything from Vera West, uh, yes. because she will be dead within a year. And for more on that, <laughs> you can see our um, Patreon exclusive from Halloween uh, with the mysterious life and mysterious or death of Vera West, available to patrons of all levels. Um, I also just want to point out, before we watch the movie, that, um, so this is She-Wolf of London. That's right. The other notable werewolf of Universal is Lon Chaney's Lawrence Talbot. Right. He's had a few movies. His character seems to have, like, had the book close on him. He has, mm-hmm. he dies mm-hmm. in, like, no, oh. he doesn't die. He's cured. Right. <sighs> He's cured. Was he does he die. And then he comes back. Uh-huh. Because he, he was, like, frozen. Yeah, he died. And then he's cured. Right. 
No, like, well, no, he got shot in House of Frankenstein, and then he came back in House of Dracula, and he was cured in House of Dracula, that's right. Yeah, so he, his story has kind of ended. Lon Chaney Jr.'s time at Universal has come to an end. Correct. Due to other things that we've talked about in those episodes. So I think that's also why they're looking at doing a different person yes. in the werewolf suit. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll see what this is. I actually haven't seen this. Mm-hmm. And... I think the interesting thing here is going to be keeping in mind that when this was made, you know, the intent was to kind of have, like, a finger in each genre, basically. Yeah, and a finger in what, all the pies. Right, and see what kind of works. Um, so we'll see, you know, what this trends towards. Yeah, I am very interested to see it. Um, how are we watching it? Well, She-Wolf of London is available on DVD or Blu-ray as part of the Wolfman Legacy Collection okay. from Universal Home Video. It is also available to rent on Apple Movies. Okay, cool. So folks, if you want to watch along, hopefully you have an iTunes account. Mm-hmm. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss She-Wolf of London from 1946, directed by Gene Yarbrough. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching She-Wolf of London from 1946, directed by Gene Yarbrough. Uh, what did you think, Sarah? I think, like, it was okay. It was fine. I don't think it deserves the reputation of the film that ruined horror for the 40s. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like we said in our intro, I think that reputation came across it. Like, whatever universal horror movie got made in this slot probably would have gotten that reputation, you know, because they canceled making horror movies a month later. I don't think it had, I mean, this movie didn't do well, but I don't know, like if they had put something out at the same time as this, instead of this, that had made $12 million, uh, would they have kept doing horror even though Rank didn't want to? I don't know. It's, you know, hard to say. Mm -hmm. I didn't think this was very good, but... There is a good movie in here somewhere. Yeah. Kind of trying to get out. Yeah, like the wolf within. <laughs> sure. Speaking you of... two wolves in you. <laughs> let's, let's talk about what does happen in this movie. Sure. So we start with a title card talking about the Allenby curse. The curse on the Allenby family... And and not so much saying, like, here's what the curse is, but more like, everyone forgot about the Allenby curse until dot 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 this movie. And if you're interested in finding out what the particulars of the Allenby curse are, you're out of luck. Yes. Because <laughs> it'll never, it, I mean, it comes up, but they never explain it. Yeah. We open in Scotland Yard. There's been a vicious attack in a London park. Now, our main guy, Inspector Pierce, thinks it's a dog attack. But Detective Latham quotes the person who was attacked who swears that it was a woman. So Latham thinks it's a werewolf. A she-wolf, if you will. It's, did we say that it's turn of the century London? Yes, it's turn of the century London. Now this attack happens in a park that is right near where Phyllis Allenby lives in her big manor house. And this attack troubles Phyllis, uh, which is not good because she is getting married next week and kind of needs to get things in order. Mm -hmm. She's getting married to solicitor and wealthy gentleman Barry Lanfield. Phyllis lives at her manor with her aunt Martha, Martha's daughter Carol, and their maid Hannah. Now... Aunt should probably be in quotation marks, as will be explained shortly. Carol has been seeing a penniless artist, and Martha tries to put an end to it. She explains to Carol that they aren't actually related to Phyllis and the other Allenbys, so Carol has to marry Rich. 
Because yeah. once Phyllis marries Barry, there ain't gonna be nothing for us. Now, Carol is of marrying age and has not been told this at all. Mm-hmm. This is the first she is hearing of it. So, Martha, what are you doing? Yeah, no kidding, right? Like, if you want your kid to be on the same page as you, like, you just need open lines of communication. Exactly. About how you're actually just Phyllis's dad's old girlfriend that he hired as his housekeeper after he got married, which is like, Oof. That, is, <laughs> that is a flex. Yes. Now, this is a house full of ladies. So to protect them from whoever attacked that man, Martha has bought two German shepherds who always just seem to bark at Phyllis, but are otherwise very well trained. Mm -hmm. That night, we see a cloaked figure returning to the manor with the dogs coming with her. The next day, in the newspapers, a young boy has been mangled and killed. They say it's a dog attack, but Phyllis is worried that she is the killer. This is because Phyllis... When she awoke, found blood on her hands, muddy shoes, dirty house coat. So she's convinced that the Allenby curse is upon her. She tells Martha this, and Martha says, "No, I'm I'm sure it's I'm sure it's nothing. It's okay." Yeah, that's silly. You just you just got some bad nerves because you're getting married and you're just worried about stuff. And Phyllis is like, "No, I couldn't possibly marry Barry now. I've killed a child. I'm a werewolf. I can never see Barry again." So, Martha starts pushing Barry and Carol together. Meanwhile, Detective Latham looks around the neighborhood for loose dogs and suspicious people and does come to the manor house being like, Hey, any loose dogs or suspicious people around? No? Okay. Well, I'll be in the park. (laughs) That night, we see a cloaked woman leave the manor with the dogs coming with her. And this woman attacks the detective. And he is brutally murdered. We see blood and everything. Because Phyllis is so afraid at night, and because of that barking of the dogs that are protecting the house, Barry decides to hang out the next night, um, just to, like, watch over everything. And that's when he sees a cloaked feminine figure leave the house and head towards the park. So he follows her, but... He gets lost in the fog that is so famously in London. That good old Universal Studios fog that hangs around the ground and (laughs) causes people to pass out from the amount of nitrogen being poured into the studio. Yes. So we we do see this uh, cloaked woman sneak up on some random man and attack him. And as everyone rushes in to look after the guy, we see the cloaked woman run off. Looking after the guy, we have, you know, some police, Barry, and... Carol, mm-hmm. come in. Yeah, the cloaked woman who attacked him leaves frame right, and then Carol, a cloaked woman, enters frame left. <laughs> so she explains, Carol that is, that she was going to meet this guy, her boyfriend. The penniless artist. Whose name, by the way, is Dwight Severin. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is the greasy-haired, hook-nosed heir to a beat empire. Dwight Schrute? From The Office? You're right, but, like, people's... It's usually people's last names that connect them through families, not first names. <laughs> Listen, I had the joke for Dwight Severin, Severus Snape and Dwight Schrute right. coming together. <laughs> Carol's like, no, really, I was just going to meet my boyfriend here. The next day, Barry comes to the manor and confronts Carol, saying, I know you're the she-wolf. I followed you from the house... I know that you might be insane, but we'll figure this out. And she's like, no, really, I, I've been meeting Dwight, like, several times a week. I'm not the she-wolf, it's fine. Martha overhears that Carol has been seeing Dwight behind her back, and she's upset with Carol. She was supposed to marry Barry. Mm-hmm. Later, Phyllis, very nervously, confides in Carol that she thinks she's the she-wolf because of this Allen B. curse. However, Carol thinks that that something else is going on, things just aren't adding up, so she convinces Phyllis to let her get the police involved. As she is leaving, Carol tells Martha, I'm going to get the police. Stuff is afoot. We need the police to investigate. As Carol leaves the manor, Barry follows her, and then Dwight, Carol's boyfriend, follows him. Martha goes upstairs to Phyllis. 
and she's bringing her a glass of warm milk. You know, to kind of calm her nerves for the place. Just kidding! She is drugging Phyllis. And as Phyllis is drugged, Martha explains that she is going to kill her. With the police involved, they'll find out that Martha has been trying to drive Phyllis insane by stoking the flames of her thinking that the LMB curse is real. Um, Martha actually killed that little boy and the detective and everything. But if Phyllis is found dead and is made to look like a suicide, then Carol and Martha can stay living in the house with the wealth and life they've become accustomed to. So luckily, Hannah, you know, the maid, uh, had been following Martha up the stairs and overheard all of this. So Martha chases Hannah down the stairs and Martha falls and stabs herself in the process. Just then the police arrive and start to sort everything out. Barry goes to Phyllis upstairs and says, don't worry, Martha shall never kill anyone again. The end. You got a mix of a few things here. Yeah, I mean, you can, I think, I, I would argue you can see the similarity between this and Catman of Paris, which we kind of argued was made as a cheap cash-in here, except that Catman of Paris turned out to actually have a Catman in it by the end. But the same idea of someone convincing someone else that they're the werewolf in the situation. Um, We can also see some Devil Bat's daughter with just like the gaslighting of this woman who is mostly lying in bed for the majority of the movie. You can see a bit of um, even all the way back to Cat and the Canary with the big manor house Mm -hmm. and sort of... You know, driving a woman insane so you can get the inheritance. Right. There's some Spider-Woman Strikes Back here with the, like, older matronly lady drugging the younger woman with milk. Um, And Yeah, never accepting milk from anyone ever again. And obviously (laughs) the, like, core thing that this is coming back to is cat people with just the central idea of, like, woman who isn't sure if she is lycanthrope or not. Yeah. Right? Or if it's all in her head. Lots of gaslighting, basically. Yeah, you were saying um, before we were recording that the American remake of Gaslight came out in 1944. Yeah. So that's probably why we're seeing so many gaslighty ripoffs. Mm-hmm. Though, with mentioning Cat and the Canary, that idea of like making someone think that there's some the monster or being hunted or they're crazy mm-hmm. um, is not a new premise in horror. Right. I think, you know, speaking about this plot of Martha's, like... It's a poor plan. Well, it's bad on a few different levels. For one thing, the goal of this plan is to basically get Phyllis out of the way, make it so that she can't marry Barry, uh, so that Martha and Carol can keep living in the house with all the money, and Carol will marry Barry, and that'll secure them, right? It doesn't actually make sense. Well... So it only makes sense if you drive Phyllis insane and get her committed to an asylum. Yeah. Because then Martha gets to stay in the house because Phyllis owns the house, but Martha's the housekeeper. Carol, if she marries Barry, will leave and go to live with Barry, which is the same problem if Phyllis marries Barry. So the plan only works if Phyllis is in an asylum. Martha's revised plan, where she's going to kill Phyllis make it look like a suicide so that she can't tell anyone that, you know, Martha's drugged her or whatever, that doesn't actually work. Because if Phyllis dies, then no one inherits the house because they're not related and they're out on the street. The whole plan fails if you kill her. Now, granted, the scene where Martha explains her plan and that she's going to kill Phyllis and how she's been gaslighting her the whole movie, it is, like, all Dutch angle And um, Sarah Hayden, who plays Martha, gets to, like, basically go, like, slowly crazy over the course of the scene. And it's really clear that, like, Martha has a few screws loose. Like, she's this close to being like, (laughs) like, that kind of thing. So, you know, assumedly by this point, she's not really thinking straight. The other thing is that I get, okay, you want to gaslight her, whatever. But immediately, right after that kid is killed... Phyllis is convinced, I'm the she-wolf, it's the LMB curse, I should, like, go to the police, I should be committed, and Martha is the one, like, no, 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 it'll be fine, you'll be with Barry eventually, it, it, it's okay, and it's like, 
bitch, you got what you wanted. I mean, I guess the idea here is like to we not gotta seem... stretch it out for the for the film for the runtime of the movie. Well, we can talk more about that later. I was gonna give an in-universe reason in the sense of like not wanting to like tip off too early that you're like you know you don't you know you not to get immediately like oh yeah you absolutely are a werewolf let's get you committed like not to seem you know what I mean like the natural thing to do would be like no that can't be true right so like just wanting to keep the cover but the other thing is also I don't unless Barry is the only bachelor in Mm -hmm. London Mm -hmm. in London yeah it makes no sense to push Carol and Barry together yeah so the way she's Carol marrying Rich I get it but Barry no yeah, the way she's trying to do this is she's telling Barry that Phyllis is ill. Because Phyllis is staying in bed all the time, afraid that she's a werewolf. So why don't you take Carol on the ride instead? Yeah, every time he comes to the house, she's just like, oh, you just take Carol. And I guess she's just hoping that if they spend enough time together, they'll fall in love. But this doesn't really work because Barry is already in love with Phyllis. And Carol's already in love with Dwight. So you're not going to, like change that by forcing them. If, if both of them were not seeing anyone, this plan might work. But otherwise, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Finally, in order to carry out this plan, Martha has to go out every night and brutally murder someone in a park. That's not worth it for the thing <laughs> you're doing, right? Like, like that's a bad... Any plan that's like, okay, step one, murder. murder. <laughs> step two, gaslight a babe step three inherit a house like you've kind of got that backwards like you don't want a criminal plan where you have to do a more extreme thing in order to pull off a less extreme crime of like you're killing people brutally so that you can commit fraud like that's that's a bad plan yeah i will say so sarah hayden as martha does a pretty good job she's like you know, satisfactory. She does good. Um, her monologue is fun. Yeah. I did appreciate, like, what she was doing there. The Dutch angles really helped make it work. Uh, it's, it was it's, a lot of fun. It's the only part of the movie where, like, the filmmaking kind of rouses up to do anything interesting. Yeah. June Lockhart as Phyllis is nothing special because she isn't given anything to do besides sit in bed. And be scared. And be scared. And I will say... I really did enjoy Lloyd Kerrigan as Detective Latham, mm. and I was sad and surprised that he died, and especially so brutally, because we, we literally see blood, and he collapses in front of police. They're like, shit, yeah, we- let's get him to the hospital. And you're like, yeah, so he'll live. And they're like, oh, it's too late for that. Yeah, we see that his throat's been torn out. Yeah. I think, I think later it's implied that like she basically like tore his throat out with um, like a gardening implement. Yeah. I don't know what they're called. It's the one... It's like the claw thing that you use to dig up the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a hoe, but it's like three-pronged and a handheld. Yeah. You know, we're not handheld hoe. Right. We're obviously not gardeners. The big thing against this movie is that the pacing is atrocious. It's not the worst we've seen. It is really bad, though. There are tons of scenes in this movie that exist solely to fill time. Like scenes where... You know, a cop in the park will walk up to another cop in the park and be like, so, I guess we're patrolling the park now. Yep. Well, do you think it's a werewolf? I think it's probably just a dog. Hmm, I think it's a werewolf. Or, like, scenes where, like, Barry comes to the house and, like, knocks the door and Carol answers and Barry's like, hey, can I see Phyllis? And Carol's like, no, she's sick. And Barry's like, huh, that's frustrating, and, like, walks away. Like, there's just a lot of scenes that just happen that don't add anything to the movie. The first 50 minutes of this movie is probably, like, 15 minutes worth of story. And then the last, like, five minutes of this movie could have sustained another half hour if they really wanted to. Like, you've got Martha. She's got a knife. She's all crazy. Hannah's overheard. Hannah runs away. Like, you could have done a bunch of, like, Martha chasing people around the house. All crazy stuff if yeah. you wanted to. And have instead, some... she just falls down the stairs. She just stairs. immediately falls down the stairs, and then the movie's over. Yeah. Like, all the cops come in, see her dead body. They're like, huh. And Barry's like, well, and then the movie's just over. <laughs> like, Yeah. Kind of to your point about the pacing, within, like, the first 20 minutes, we had the mystery solved. Oh, yeah. Like, we're watching the movie, and, like, 15 to 20 minutes in the movie, Sarah's like, I think it's the ant. And I'm like... 
yeah, I was thinking that too. And then like <laughs> three minutes later, it's like, yeah, she's doing it so that she can make her crazy so that they can get the house so she can marry Barry. Like we had the whole thing figured out within like 17 to 20 minutes into the yeah. movie. Maybe that's just because we watch a lot of these almost back to back, but it also was like very clearly telegraphed. And that's a huge problem with this movie though, because so much of the movie is structured around the idea that like, oh, like who is it? What's really going on? And it's obvious from, like, the moment the movie starts, practically. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's so well telegraphed, partly because I don't think the script is very good. I think the script could have been made better if Carol was also a bad guy. So we had a little bit of, like, a Cinderella thing going on. Yeah, yeah, and if there was a reason to suspect Carol when they try to fake you out with her. Yeah. But otherwise, she's just, like, a normal person. Yeah, who has been lied to her entire life. Right. Like, there's even one point where Carol goes to Phyllis and is like, hey, is there anything you want to tell me? And I'm like, yeah, like, that you're not actually cousins? And Phyllis says nothing. That so also it's would... like, does Phyllis not know? Right. I don't think Phyllis knows. Yeah. Because I don't think she knows at all. She always calls Martha Aunt Martha, which, like, that could be in, like, a friendly kind Familial, of way. Familial. Yeah, like, friend I've of known the family. My whole yeah. life. But... There's no indication that she doesn't think Martha's her aunt. And honestly, what I was hoping for from that scene was an explanation of what the fuck the Allenby curse is. Yeah. Like, tell me. Don't get anything. Something about being cursed by wolves. Yeah, yeah. Like a wolf-worshipping Scottish cult. Yeah, yeah. But it's all very, like... Vague. Vague, so they don't have to go into it. I think this... We can just sidestep all of that. I think the script could have been better, but honestly what this movie needed was a better team making it. Like, there's plenty of classic universal atmosphere here with the fog and the big house and all of that. The shadows. Yeah. yeah. But for the most part, the directing and the cinematography struck me as inert. Yeah, like until it, the Dutch angles. Right, until the scene where Martha reveals her plan. That's the scene where suddenly the movie felt alive to me, and that's like, you know... The the last last, five minutes. Exactly. And so much of the rest of the movie, like, you can tell they're trying to go for suspense with people following people through the moors and all of that. But there's just no suspense. There's no tension. It's just all laying flat. And it doesn't inspire any kind of emotional reaction in me at all. I think a big part of that is that the music often feels almost antithetical to the context. Mm. Like, it's not so bad as, like, just being needle drops. But it also is just not good at supporting what is going on screen. You know, you, you if you were to watch um, Luke going off and looking at the two suns setting right. with any other music, yeah, it would be like, what's he looking at? Right. But instead with John Williams' score, it's like, oh, he's yearning to get blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And with this film, it's like... Oh, what's he looking at? Yeah. I think the other problem, too, is that having so little story and needing to stretch it out to feature length, all of the, like, stalking through the moors kind of scenes... I mean, it's a park, but it's a moor. I mean, it's it's anything... It's a moor, eh? It's, it's not a moor, it's a Hollywood moor, which is a... The definition of a Hollywood moor is a forested area covered in dry ice. Yes. But um, all of those stalking scenes fall really flat because they're edited really um like languidly yeah like it's just here's the people walking and then here's another shot of people walking like instead of editing from like stalker to stocky it's we watch someone walk through a frame and then like two or three paces behind them watch the person who's following them yeah like the stationary camera just completely takes you out of it yeah to the point where like i I was like, oh, I'm so on edge when you see the cloaked woman approaching um, the boyfriend sitting Mm -hmm. on a bench from behind. Um, Because it was like, I know it's Carol. Like, I know it's not actually anyone going to attack. So then I I was surprised when she does attack. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, like, it's immediately resolved. Like, it's not like, oh, shit, is Carol? Yeah, yeah. Because you see her run off and Carol, come on. Like, they could have done... As you're saying, if it was a better team behind the camera in doing the production, we could have had a bit more suspense about who is the She-Wolf. Well, so compare this to Val Luton, 
right? A Val Luton flick, a Jacques Tourneur, Mark Ropes, and Rob Wise. Because this is, I think Val Luton is what they're trying to do here. Yeah. The thing is, if you really look at a lot of his movies, they are kind of guilty of nothing happens for an hour, and then a bunch of stuff happens in the last five minutes. Like, that's Isle of the Dead. Yeah. But the Luton films keep you engaged through that because the filmmakers know how to use suspense and tension to keep you engaged and keep you not thinking like, wow, like nothing's happening in this movie, right? They they tune you into the psychological terror that the lead character's feeling of like, am I a vampire or not? You know, you 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 feel that. You don't really feel what Phyllis is feeling. And, and mostly because of the fact that there's no buildup with Phyllis, right? Like you brought up that Martha could have immediately gotten her plan done, but also on a movie making level, it's there's not... no doubt in her mind. She just immediately goes for it. Right, which means that there's nowhere for her character arc to go for the rest of the movie, right? It's not like, oh, what's going on? What's happening? Oh, I don't know. Oh, a boy was murdered. Oh, dear. Could this be the Allenby curse? Well, I better go up to the old study and pull down the big book of family lore and look at it. And then, oh, maybe it is me. And then the next murder happens. I'm like, oh, I think it is me. Oh, no. We got to lock me up or something. And then... I was locked up, but another murder happened. It must be me. I I must be the werewolf. Instead, like, we get to that last part immediately. So there's no, there's no buildup of anything. Yeah. Right? Totally. Absolutely. Like, you can make a bad script passable with good filmmakers. Because then you don't notice the flaws as much. Because you're entertained. Yeah. But when you're sitting there bored, that's when your mind has the time to go like, Wait a minute. There's also, as I said, you know, in the intro, as I was expecting, there's a lot of non-horror stuff in here. There's comedy, there's a lot of romance, especially up front. Um, You got the psychology stuff coming in. So you can kind of see that, like, something for everyone approach. It's not as guilty of that, though, I think, as something like Catman of Paris, which was very, like western right or like historical fiction-y because at least the genres that she-wolf of london was stepping into or dipping into were horror adjacent sure um speaking of catman of paris's westernness and this movie's romanceness i i can't let go the fact that like so all these murders are happening in a park right when it's nighttime, the park is obviously a Universal Studios set, so they can pump in all that dry ice. In the daytime, they're on location somewhere. And they're, you know, on location somewhere in Southern California, trying to pretend that that's a park in London. And, like, so I don't know Victorian London that well. I don't know what parks there were or what they were like. But I suspect they don't look like miles and miles of open countryside in but Southern you can California. Just ride your horse. Well, and where you can't see any buildings anywhere on the horizon anywhere. Like even if you're in Central Park in New York, it's not like you can look to the horizon and there's nothing but trees and grass as far as you can see. It's it's really unconvincing, but it's never so much more unconvincing as a scene where Barry and Phyllis, it's like halfway through the movie, they're out on a carriage ride, and it's as if, like, they ran out of shooting days at the park. Yes. Because there's no other reason to do this. The whole thing is on, like, a mat. And, you know, the kind of thing they're, if you picture an old movie and they're in a car, and there's the scenery behind them, and you can tell that it's something somebody filmed and has just been put in behind them later, uh, it's like that, but for a carriage, but the carriage is stationary. They stop the carriage and have a conversation, shot, reverse shot, for like five minutes. But there's this like kind of wiggling filmed image of the park behind them. It's like... It's so distracting. What is going on here? And it's, yeah, it's clearly just that they like went a little over schedule and didn't have another day at the park and just shot that on a set. Yep. So I guess we have to figure out, Sarah, if this is horror. Is this horror... I think it is. I think it's just bad. Okay. Because for me, I think that while it is akin to Devil Bat's Daughter, which we said was in horror, mm-hmm. um, mainly because of the execution of that, mm-hmm. and it has similarities to Gaslight, 
which right. again is not horror. Yeah, um, like if this is anything that's not horror, it's closest to psychological thriller. Yeah, but I think it still has a toe or two in horror because of the way that it's relying on horror tropes mm-hmm. to even make you think that there's an actual werewolf. Yeah, and I think the ending part with Martha pushes it more into horror as well because then, you know, it's it's the mad woman and you have to be rescued. I mean, they don't get rescued because she just falls on a knife tumbling down a, the stairs because clearly they, like, got to the end of the movie and they were like, ah, we don't know how to do this. Uh, we don't know what the ending should be. Just, just fall down the stairs and you'll end on the knife. Well, because you can't attack a woman, Ben. Right. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think if this movie had been well done, the way that it uses horror tropes would have been smart. Like, the opening titles and their font and their imagery and, like, if this movie had leaned more into, like, adopting Universal Studios imagery that's so well set in culture by this point in 1946 to convince you that, like, hey, it's a Universal movie and there's fog and there's a big mansion. Like, it's obviously a real werewolf. Like, it's not, this isn't a Warner Brothers movie. This is Universal. Um, If it leaned more into that to make the, it's not really a werewolf, more of a surprise. But Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if we're saying this is horror, because I was sort of on the fence, but if we're saying this is horror, where do we want to rank? So I started looking down at Catman of Paris. Yeah. Because that film was ripping off this one. Yes. And comparing the two, I think I would replace Catman of Paris and put She-Wolf of London at number 115, Catman of Paris below it, because, like I said before, at least She-Wolf of London is dipping into her adjacent genres... And not Westerns. And not Westerns. (laughs) Now, to be the advocate for Catman of Paris for a moment, at least Catman of Paris has a real fucking monster in it. Does it, though? Yeah, he turns into Mephistopheles, and everyone thinks he looks like a cat. That's, like, the the last five minutes. He's a dude who reincarnates. (laughs) Jesus. If you compare just the last five minutes of both Uh films... Uh I think She-Wolf of London is more effective because it's like the unraveling of a plan from a madwoman right. versus a cat man dying on a couch explaining, explaining the plot. Explaining that he had a gay crush on the guy he was gaslighting. Yes. Right. Well, I was looking in and around that same area. Um, like your pick for a spot is in my range because my range was 110 to 123. Uh, 110 is Jungle Captive, the movie where Paula Dupree lies on a table the entire time while Rondo Hatton goes out and does things. And then 123 is The Monster Walks, which I think is definitely worse than this. And in between there, we have stuff like Captain of Paris. We also have Spider-Woman Strikes Back, so kind of the similar things. Um, looking at Catman of Paris, okay, if it's better than Catman of Paris, if we agree on that, Right above that is Black Moon. Is this better than Black Moon? Part of the reason why we put Catman of Paris here is because while it is more horror than La Llorona right below it, the competency of filmmaking is not as good as in Black Moon. It's also less horror than Black Moon. Yes, and I would say that same argument applies to She-Wolf of London. Black Moon was directed by Roy William Neal, He's not an A-list director, if you know what I mean. Like, he's familiar with the Poverty Row kind of genre, but I think he has a level of filmmaking in Black Moon that is perhaps a little better, or at least more inspired than Yarbrough's filmmaking here. Like, we have a couple crane shots in She-Wolf of London. We have the Dutch angles. But for the most part, like, the camera is stationary. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In, like, these giant... Giant rooms in this manor <laughs> house, right? There, a lot of this movie is, like, very proscenium, very, like, wide-angle. Yeah, whereas Black Moon, like, I don't remember it being that boring well, in terms of filmmaking. Black Moon was about trying to make you feel trapped and claustrophobic in this house. Yeah. Because the natives were coming to get you. Yeah. Right? Other Roy Neal films that we have on the list include Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. He also did the original Spider-Woman and the Pearl of Death movie that the Creeper started. He did a bunch of Sherlock Holmes. Sure. A lot of Sherlock Holmes. He, he leveled up to at least Sherlock Holmes B-movie. Right. So, yeah, I think, I think I'm think i inclined to agree then. So, 115? Yeah. 
So entering the list at number 115 is She-Wolf of London from 1946, directed by Gene Yarbrough. That was easy. <laughs> if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we might have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can chat with us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Listen to us through whichever podcasting app you prefer by subscribing through our RSS feed. If the service that you use lets you leave a rating or a review, we would really appreciate you doing that. Five-star ratings and good reviews help the show get seen by new listeners. The other way that you can help us get new listeners to the show is just by telling folks you know about the show. Uh, Coworkers, friends, family, people you meet on the bus, uh, whatever you got. Another way you can help out the show is by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we are soliciting questions for a Q&A segment for our 100th week of our Patreon. And if we get enough questions, that'll go up as a Q&A available to patrons of all levels. So once again, that's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. And if you have a question to submit, you can do so by emailing us, screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or telling us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. It would be super cool to hear from you. In the meantime, what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, we're seeing the last horror movie that we're going to get out of Republic Pictures in the 1940s. It is Valley of the Zombies, the second half of the double feature with Catman of Paris. Okay, what about Cat Creeps, which was like the other half of She-Wolf of London? It's not horror. It's oh. it's it's very definitely a suspense movie. Okay. Yeah. Especially right now, in this time period, they're really blurring the lines, so I wasn't sure. Yeah, Cat Creeps is definitely a suspense film marketed like a horror movie. Okay, cool. Then we will travel to Valley of the Zombies for next week. We will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.